I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, author and philosopher Alan DeBotton shares his recipe for love, fulfillment, and finding the ideal partner. The people that we really feel we need to be with aren't those with whom everything's always perfect. It's those who seem to have space for our complexity, who seem able to forgive us for our strangeness, and who seem to have tenderness for our most awkward sides. These are the people we need to be with, and of course, do exactly the same thing for them. And later, he explains why certain aspects of loneliness and disappointment play a vital role in our lives. What I try and do in my work is to rehabilitate sadness and incompleteness as something that we can embrace, make ourselves at home with, and use as a tool to connect with others. Alan DeBotton joins us for the full hour to discuss the complexities of modern love and much more. That's all coming up on Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Changes in society and culture have had significant impacts on our relationships and views on marriage. Centuries ago, not much thought was given to personal happiness and fulfillment. Family pressure, procreation, and security were often the main drivers for forging a marital bond. Cultural shifts in emancipation, as well as longer life expectancy and even dating apps, have shifted that paradigm. And with that, our relationship expectations, from spouse to soulmate and even teammate. But what kinds of qualities make for a good partnership? Do we really need to share common interests? Are we too picky or over-focused on the wrong things? Philosopher, co-founder, and chairman of the School of Life, Alan DeBotton, has made it his mission to show and teach philosophy's relevance to everyday living. His books include Essays in Love, Why You'll Marry the Wrong Person, and my personal favorite, which is called How Proust Can Change Your Life. Alan DeBotton, welcome to Life Examined. It's great to have you. Such a pleasure. It could just be anecdotally, but I I feel like when I check in with our culture, or it just could be my community, I hear so much of of marital strain or people seeking new love or new chapters or uh, different studies, whether divorce is going up or down. But I'm fascinated in this question of love in this current century, and you yourself have also been fascinated by love and have written so much about it. And I I thought we should start there, Uh, kind of an open question to you. But such a good one, such an important one. Look, I I see it like this. For most of human history, people were okay with just having bearable relationships. They they didn't expect to deeply love the people that they got together with. Love was imagined as a, a passing ecstatic state, not something that would last beyond six months when you were young. We've now become so ambitious about what our relationships could be. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong, But if we're going to be that ambitious, we need to do some work. In other words, we need to do the labor that our expectations require. And we're not doing it. Um, What I mean by work primarily, and apologies if this sounds sort of reductive, but but let me state my, my, my belief here. I believe that the single greatest invention and development in the humanities of the last 120 years has been psychoanalysis and with it in its wake, psychotherapy. I'm not identifying one particular school or denomination, but broadly speaking, the idea that the behavior that we manifest in the present was substantially shaped by dynamics that are only semi-conscious and that owe a lot to our earliest years. Mm. This seems to me, you know, forgive the audience if, if, if you don't agree, incontestably true. And nevertheless, still constantly hard to really get a handle on. Because it's such a challenge to the way that we operate day to day, where we broadly assume that we're in total command of what we want and think and do, and that our actions are entirely in the purview of our rational minds. And psychoanalysis comes along and says, no, that's not true. You know, most of us, most of who we are, is sunk in darkness. Now, what on earth does this have to do with love? You know, when two people are interacting, you don't just have two people. First of all, you've got four people. You've got both sets of parents immediately in the room, you know, in the bedroom, dare I say it. Um, You've got aunts, uncles, generations behind them. We are the products of more than just ourselves. And this makes the average relationship just dizzyingly complicated, but also amazing. Um, And look, I would say this, you know, 
anyone who isn't thrilled by the complexity of modern day love shouldn't you know, go anywhere near it. The only way to make the whole thing bearable is to see it as interesting and to be curious about it. And the partner that all of us need is not someone who is perfect because no one's perfect, but someone who can join us in the adventure. And I really mean it's an adventure um, of mutual exploration of one another's psyches. We're all crazy. All of us are crazy. You know, if you go on a date with somebody and they refuse to admit they're crazy, they are really crazy. <laughs> the people we need are not totally, you know, sane ones. There aren't any. They're people who are modest enough and graceful enough to confess, you know, with, with good humour that, of course, you know, they they come to the table damaged. But someone who knows where the damage is and can admit to it with a little bit of humour, maybe, this is the kind of person we need. It's so true that the sense that our our relationships, in some ways, are are predetermined or have essences of of our parents, of certain family systems we were born into. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. I mean, there there's this idea, for example, in psychoanalysis that um, if if you're a male heterosexual, you're, you're you may marry your mother unconsciously or consciously, or marry into the dynamics of your parents' relationships. And that's something that does seem to be true when we look at this, just pattern after pattern, no? Absolutely. You know, we are technically free to marry and get together with whoever we like. Uh, This has been the great liberation of the modern age. But what we don't fully appreciate is just how psychologically restricted we are. Mm. Um, And, you know, we pick this up and we say, you know, I, I met so-and-so, they were really cute, they were really good-looking, but I just don't feel attracted to them. What we're really talking about here often is a kind of psychological attraction. And, you know, let's be let's be frank here. Sometimes what we miss in somebody is the fact that they may not torture us. Mm-hmm. They may not make us unhappy. They may not make us suffer in the way that we feel we need to suffer in order to feel familiar. And um, it's, again, part of the the dizzying excitement of uh, modern love. Well, let me ask you this. Say say you find yourself in, in just that very scenario. You have found someone in which previous marital relational patterns are uh, have been borne out. Is that a functional relationship? Is that one in which there can ultimately be satisfaction and, and, and comfortability or all these <laughs> incompatible things that we want in a relationship anyway? Well, I would say that what's immediately important is to get this on the table Mm. because suffering in silence is, you know, obviously going to be the end of love, trust, communication. In other words, if you find yourself um, both, you know, really admiring somebody, really liking them, but if you suddenly start to feel a little bit sick because they've been so sweet to you, maybe they've remembered it's your birthday and bought you a really lovely present. And on the one hand, you're grateful. And on the other, you feel nauseous. Mm. Don't suffer in silence. Try and get a handle on what's going on and say to your partner, you know, I I, thank you so much for doing what you're doing to me. But I have to admit something to you. You know, in my childhood, this didn't happen very often. In my childhood, when good things happened, this was often the prelude to abandonment Mm. and to something bad happening. Therefore, though I'm deeply grateful, I'm also totally freaked out by your gift. And I'm feeling like I need to lie down and maybe run away from you. Can I tell you this? And, you know, a a really good partner on the other end of that, rather than panicking, rather than throwing it back in their face and getting offended, will go, you know what, this is, you know, we're all crazy. It's okay. Um, I've got my crazy bits too. This is your crazy bit. Um, If you don't mind, let's just sit with this. Let's sit with, you know, my desire to please you and your desire to freak out when, you know, I do so. And let's talk about it. And I suspect that in the second wave of this kind of acknowledgement of the first wave of complexity will come a new feeling of trust and openness. As I say, the people that we really feel we need to be with aren't those with whom everything's always perfect. It's those who seem to have space for our complexity, who seem able to forgive us for our strangeness, and who seem to have tenderness for our most awkward sides. These are the people we need to be with, and of course, do exactly the same thing for them. It's interesting because I think that in in any marriage or relationship, uh, there will inevitably be hard times, however you define those. And there is this 
Um, perhaps it's this romantic vision that you referenced earlier or something else that, oh, but it could probably be easier with somebody else or there's someone else out there in which this specific varietal of suffering, I love how you use that, the variety of suffering, um, would be would be slightly different. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about this, the kind of imaginary other that we could bring in in which life would be different. Mm. Look, this is how I see it. There's a kind of... Um depressive vision of love which says at first it's exciting and then gradually we lose interest and we want other people and of course that's you know a a very common experience but but let me posit a more hopeful scenario you know we don't need people who will always let's say remain young or always do exactly what we want to do what we first and foremost want is a partner who makes us feel understood and heard. And I, I know that we, I, I know this may not sound unfamiliar to, to many of your listeners, mm. but, but let's just pause and really understand what that means. If someone makes you feel that almost anything that goes through your mind is okay, and is something they may be interested in, and it may be the desire to take up with a new partner, it may be the desire to throw in the job and go and live in a hut somewhere, it, however outlandish and strange, if your partner is someone who's kind of curious about that, they they see it as part of their their role as a partner to to be curious about your mind and to be open. I think this is the most attractive quality. I, I don't think that anyone who's on the receiving end of that openness will ever leave their partner. Of course, they'll recognise when they go to the mall or, or, or hang out at a party that there are other people who may be momentarily more exciting, more physically graceful, doesn't matter. Uh, you know, we, we will register that, but not act upon it. Because ultimately, what we've got in our partner is someone who is listening open-mindedly and with curiosity. And there is literally nothing more attractive and nothing more guaranteed to to make a relationship last. And, you know, dating apps get this wrong for us because they're always trying to direct us towards people who share our interests. And while it matters a little bit that someone plays golf if you play golf and they like fishing if you like fishing and they vote this if you vote this, etc. At the end of the day, none of that counts anywhere near as much as a desire to be curious and an ability to understand the mind of the other one. There could be a thousand differences, but so long as there is that basic tender curiosity in in one another's lives, then anyone can be doing anything and it's going to be okay. So I think this is too often missed when people say, oh, relationships are doomed to get unexciting. Mm. You know, if you want to go on a date night and have an exciting time with your partner, it's nothing about lighting a candle or going to a hotel. The most attractive kind of thing that you can do to your partner is to start asking questions like this. To ask them, for example, um, what's been on your mind lately? How have I been frustrating you? What is it about our relationship that sometimes gets you down? Mm -hmm. What could we do better Um, what is it you still like about me? And how could I change to get things to go better for you? These are some of the most aphrodisiacal questions that we could ever ask uh, and hear and be on the receiving end of. This is the kind of stuff that gets couples going again, because it increases the blood flow through the heart of love. You talked about, for example, the 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 incredible breakthrough uh, that psychotherapy has had on our culture. Do you do you suggest? I mean, a lot of these questions to me are are the at the heart of also doing couples therapy or counseling. Do you, do you suggest that couples go get that help if they need it, and that there that is one place to ask these questions? Yes, absolutely. But look, let me be honest here. Um, I'm a huge advocate and fan of psychotherapeutic theory. Mm. I also want to say that there are many therapists out there who are not very good. And I'm sorry if you're listening. <laughs> but, but you know, it's really the case. And I think that if you find yourself in the company of therapists who are not making much of a difference, leaving you uncomfortable, um, shop around, move around, do not sit and suffer or give up on yourself or give up on your couple too easily. Move around and, and look around. I think that very often, you know, there's a there's a very brave thing that psychotherapists have to do with their clients. And that is, at a certain point, stop listening 
and start to have a thesis about why the couple or the individual are not doing so well. Mm. And many therapists um, step back a little bit gingerly from that challenge. They don't have a robust and active sense of what the treatment involves and needs to target. And so you get these sort of shapeless therapies that just go on and on. It's somehow, you know, it's very easy as a therapist just to keep listening. But at some point, you've got to stop listening and you have to put forward um, an interpretation. Mm. And you say, guys, you're doing this wrong, or this is happening, etc. And it's a scary moment for the therapist, because you could lose your client. Right. And many clients, um, and many therapists sort of hold back from that. And, and then, as I say, you get these, these slightly ill-defined therapies. So therapy, yes, your particular therapist, if they're not working for you, consider a change. Yeah, I appreciate that insight. And I, I, I'm sure many of our listeners do as well. Uh, I, I wonder how much of modern culture and modern theories and pressures and commercial attitudes about love need to be tuned out, whether it's all of the uh, magazines about what a wedding should look like or dramas about what a functioning relationship should look like or, or any of that stuff. Uh, how, how does one navigate those things? Yeah. I mean, look, it's such an important point. I think I think your listeners will probably feel at some level, either very strongly or partly, um, that the environment in which we live, the social and cultural environment in which we live in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. but also across the United States, across the developed world, is deeply, deeply unhelpful to finding what you could broadly call peace of mind. Huh. The, the images that we see beamed at us, the messages that we pick up on our phones, the, the chatter and atmosphere of the social world, none of this is well geared to relaxing us. And I think we all of us have some sense that if we could get away from that, if somehow we could pull away, and some of us try for a little bit with meditation or walks in nature or, you know, going to do some cooking with everything switched off, you know, we, we, we try and find a balance. But I think the problem is very deep and we almost can't realise how much this drags us down. It drags down our relationships, but it, it drags down our spirits generally. I think that in order to be the people we really want to be, we need to be extremely tough editors of the messages that reach our ears. Mm. And that will involve our phones, which are possibly the single greatest tool of modern misery. Uh, but it also involves every screen we're likely to come across. Many of us have friends who are not worthy of the name. We call them friends, but in their impact on our souls, on what they do to us, they actually exhaust us, they drain us, they project onto us all kinds of negative feelings. We need rid of them. Um, and so I think we need a general curation of the inflammation and moods that, that, that reach us. And that way we will be the calmer, kinder people that I think we are sometimes in the middle of the night when it's just us and the universe, when it's just us and the stars. We feel then a kind of connection to something calmer, deeper and kinder. But that's very hard to maintain at 9am on a Monday morning. But, but we should try, that could almost be our life's goal. Um, and it's it's very hard, particularly in the Los Angeles area yeah. and, you know, in many of the large conurbations of the world, that peace of mind is very hard to come by and it does pollute our love. I, I'm interested that you brought in friendships here, which has been a really important theme on our program. And I remember very clearly a moment where somebody asked me, when you spend time with, with so-and-so person, are you left with more energy or left with a feeling of exhaustion and negativity, which is something I think you just hit on there. Um, I, I'd love to explore friendship with you and why you think it's so important, especially mm. now and in the modern world. Mm. Well, I'll start with a confession. I'm very lonely. Mm. I don't have enough friends. I mean, I have met a huge range of people. I, I come into contact with a huge range of people, but I'm lonely. You know, I have two good friends in the world, um, one of them lives quite far away from me and the other one is often busy and sadly is quite ill. So I'm very often left feeling I wish I had better friends. And it's not that, you know, I'm surrounded by awful people. It's just I don't find the connection, the curiosity, the emotional openness that I seek in a friend. And I'm confessing this kind of openly and in a way, deliberately, pathetically, in order to encourage listeners to feel, hmm, maybe I'm 
in a way, if I'm honest with myself, also in that boat. As I say, it's not that I have no one to have dinner with. It's that I have no one, very few people, to truly connect with. And it's as big a problem, perhaps a bigger problem for many of us than relationships, because the, the search for a good partner is very well, you know, there's a lot of people thinking about that, a lot of guides a lot of a lot of conversations yes. around it the search for a good friend is is a more silent one we, we generally assume that unless we've just moved town uh unless we're kind of new in a place we should have friends but no i i think it's very possible to have reached you know middle age and later and still be lacking in friends this isn't a personal deficiency it's it's a sign of how demanding it is and how arduous it is to find the connection we long for how do you think of a, a good friendship? What, what does it bring us? How, how should we seek it into our lives? Mm. I think, I mean, look, a good friend does many things for us. One of the things that a really good friend does is to help us to think and to know ourselves better than we can when we're alone. So a really good friend will say something like, I know you, you don't really mean that, do you? Mm. And we think, ah, they're right. Or they'll say, you're always saying that. I wonder why last year, da, da, da. And you think, huh, this person has got me in their mind and they are helping me to interpret me to me. And that's a beautiful thing. Mm. The other thing that a good friend does is to reassure us of our fundamental decency. They spare us feelings of shame so that when we come to them and we say, I've done this strange thing in the middle of the night or I have this odd feeling about this or that, they go, you know what? I've been there too. Not necessarily directly there, but in that zone. I know what you mean. They they stretch our conception of normality beyond what we normally hear and are made to understand in the kind of ordinary hubbub of society. They, they stretch what we can think of as normal and bearable. Mm. And that's very useful. Another thing a good friend does is give us a chance to be agreeably and necessarily silly. Adult life is very serious, but sometimes we need to release, we need to giggle, we need to laugh, we need to get in touch with the more playful sides of us. So, you know, we might go dancing with our friend, we might um, be irreverent towards certain people that we're meant to respect, Uh, we may subvert certain opinions that we're supposed to think of as good, but actually we don't really agree with. They're, They're a chance for, they offer us a chance for complicity in a playful way. And I think this is where this very uh, funny saying is, well, it's your, it's your intimate partner who should be your best friend. You hear that over and over and over again. But I, I'm, I'm fascinated in this idea of the difference between the intimate partner and the friendship, because oftentimes you'll even hear people say, oh, it's when I finally get out with my friends, I can, I can be myself and just relax and, 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 and live that other life. I'm sure you've come across that as well. Look, I, I think it would be sad if one felt that one's partner was not a friend. Mm. Um, But maybe we can also admit that we need different friends for different things. Um, That we've got, after all, many sides of us. And there are some friends who will understand certain sides and others other sides. And perhaps no one can understand everything about us. So we, we need friends for different functions. We, we may need a friend who's, you know, very intellectually curious. We may need a friend who's very warm and indulgent and kind. We, we may need a friend who shares our, our interests in, you know, baking or aeroplanes or politics or whatever it may be. So, you know, ideally we'd have a, a small but very tightly knit circle. And these would, these would be the people who would uh, be on our side and defend us through the trials of, of life. But as I say, it's it's one of the greatest privileges, and I don't think many people, if they're honest, can really lay claim to the true friendships that, that they would like. And I mean, some people do, in which case you are blessed, but I think you are in a serious minority. I also reflect on this idea that sometimes with an intimate partner, you, you hear this often, right? That you feel as if you could, uh, they know you too well, or the other way around, or everything you say could be anticipated by your intimate partner, and therefore perhaps... The friend brings, as you say, uh, brings out certain nuances of our character, certain things that feel like they haven't been explored. And I suppose this speaks to what makes romantic long-term relationships hard and why friendships can also be so fulfilling. Yes, I mean, I think one of the things that we really want from people is a chance to invent ourselves afresh, Mm. to begin anew. 
And I think that one of the depressing things of long-term relationships can be if the partner always wants to hold us back to something that we have done or said in the past. If they say things to us, things like, um, you're not someone who enjoys parties, or you're not somebody who likes going swimming, or you've never paid attention to your wardrobe. And you want to say, but today's a new day. And what about if I reinvented myself as somebody who does care about some of these things? So I think beware with any long-term partner of defining them too tightly as what they have been. All of us should have the chance to grow into someone new. And the advantage of the new friend is that, you know, they don't have baggage. They don't have a view of who we are. And therefore, they can take us at face value when we say, you know, now I'm into surfing or now I'd like to read Freud right. or now I'd like to, you know, vote another way. They, they don't want to tug us back to something they knew. Yeah. And I think the, the advice to the partner is don't be threatened by new evolutions of your partner. Allow them to become you know, 10 different people over the coming months. That's all of us contain multitudes and should be able to express and grow into multitudes. Once again, that was Alan DeBotton, philosopher, author, and founder of The School of Life. Still to come, how a breakdown can often be a prelude to a breakthrough. We'll continue our conversation with Alan DeBotton after this short break. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We'll continue now with our conversation with philosopher and author Alan DeBotton. In the first half of my conversation, DeBotton talks about the societal pressures on modern relationships— and offers advice on how to embrace imperfections in our partners and allow for compassion and understanding. He also talks about some of the harder emotions that humans face, and that loneliness is something he deals with frequently. I pick up the conversation by reflecting back on that statement. I was struck just just a few minutes ago when you had this this beautiful confession that you're a lonely person, and and I I wonder who who listening isn't on some level a, a lonely person, or what what degrees of loneliness do we all experience? And I one thing I I find interesting in your work is how you um, you cast a very beautiful light on some of the darker aspects of of who we are, whether it's loneliness or solitude, or at times pessimism. Um, would you say more about that, how that's factored into some of your work? Yes, look, it, it is. Um, I mean, look, let's talk a little bit about the United States. Sure. The United States is is a beautiful country in so many ways. But one of the reasons why it has its psychological complexities is that it's a country that is oriented fundamentally towards happiness and towards development and the pursuit of contentment. You know, it's there inscribed from its very genesis. And and that is wonderful in lots of ways. But what do we do with sadness? What do we do with disappointment? You know, I had the mixed blessing to be born in Europe. And Europe is the continent of melancholy. No one does melancholy better than Europe. You know, Europe is the home of tragedy, literally tragedy. I mean, it starts up in Greece and then spreads all around the continent. In other words, the notion that a good life is not necessarily uh, and incidentally unhappy, but fundamentally and inevitably struck by disasters. We have to die. We are. We won't ever be totally understood. Our jobs will compromise us. We will live in imperfect societies. These are not accidents. These are part of the script of life. And I think it can be hard to accept that in the city on the hill that is the United States. Mm. And so sometimes, you know, Americans will kick against that and think there is something wrong. And what I try and do in my work is to rehabilitate sadness and incompleteness as something that we can embrace, make ourselves at home with and use as a tool to connect with others. Because you know, there is nothing like the bond that can be achieved between two people when they are ready to admit that they have lost illusions, that they have areas of sadness. That can be the beginning of friendship and the deepest kind of connection. You know, if you meet somebody and you say, how are you doing? And they say, terrific, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. And you have to feel like you have to say, well, I'm terrific too. You're in trouble. You can't break out of the circle of loneliness. But if you have space, 
if you say, I've read an Alain de Botton book and he's told me that I can be sad. And in fact, I've been crying. And they say, oh my God, I've heard of this guy too. I can be sad too. And then you, I'm kidding, but you have the beginning of something more um, genuine because it's something that 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 allows room for the sadness that's in, in all of us. So I, I, I do try and inject that into my work as a almost as a as a signal to the reader it's okay i'm inviting you into you know after all l- let's think clearly about this when do people pick up a book generally they pick up a book because life is either boring mm. lonely confusing sad you don't pick up a book if everything is terrific right so books are the repository of some of our darkest most tender most most fragile and difficult thoughts and i think authors should bear that in mind you know you you, you read in a particular state of mind and the onus should be on the writer to, to be aware that that the reader is their fellow traveler in in suffering and and that's sometimes what we go to books for it strikes me too i i, I was thinking as you were talking about this idea that it's oftentimes sadness or loneliness that kind of moves the needle on life it, it, it's how we actually get somewhere if, if we live in this state of perpetual um, just happiness or pleasure where where is growth where is change how does anything evolve out of that and so it does strike me as as an important emotional state one that we try to get rid of as fast as we can though of course that's right. I mean, you know, I, I work with this organization called the School of Life, and we have a saying there that a breakdown is often a, a prelude to a breakthrough. So when people think about a breakdown, they think, oh, my goodness, you know, I'm going to collapse, things are going to go wrong, I'm not going to be able to cope, etc. But interpreted generously and handled sensitively, a, a, a sudden moment where one can't cope anymore, where one's just had enough, where where the old certainties no longer hold, where, where we, as I say, we've we've had enough of the old way. That can be the beginning of something new. And sometimes inarticulately, our suffering, our symptoms, our a sense of unbearableness is signaling to us that we need to make a change. And it's often only through breakdowns and crises that we advance towards being the sort of people that we want to be and that we properly come to understand ourselves. You know, the mind is the mind is unfair. It often doesn't yield its best insights into its nature without a considerable amount of pain. It waits for the pain to build up the pressure that will give us the energy to look inside of us, which we wouldn't do if things were going very easily for us. Mm. I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on how we how we let some of that that sadness break through. I mean, of course, there are some that live in perpetual sadness, but I I think that I, when I think, for example, of, of the archetypal male psyche, it's one that's built to try and avoid these things or avoid the serious emotions that crack through the surface once in a while. Um, I suppose it could be true of any sex, but I, it just comes to mind for me. Yes. I mean, look, the number one thing that we all do, by the way, you know, the, the inability to sit quietly with our feelings is is rife. And, and mm. in a way, what we use is addictions of various kinds, not necessarily drugs, though sometimes drugs, but we can be addicted to, to, to anything. We can be addicted to exercise, to, the, to checking on the news, to, um, uh, you know, to, to buying things, etc. So we use addiction to take us away from our more tender and vulnerable thoughts. So an addiction is simply anything that takes you away from you. And this this is never a good idea. It leads to runaway insomnia. You know, I always think that insomnia is essentially a revenge for all, the, it's, the, it's, it's the mind's revenge for all the thoughts that you, in inverted commas, forgot to have in the day. And they're coming back to haunt you at night because they need to be heard. And so to answer your question, really, you know, what a lot of us need to do is spend more time with our own minds. And the best way to do this is to have a long, hot bath, uh, to sit on a bed with headphones. Music is terrific. We have more access to good music than ever before. And these kind of meditative states, when we're gazing out of the window, when we're in inverted commas, not doing very much, are frequently with the moments when we can bear to acknowledge emotions which are difficult, like mm. maybe I shouldn't be in this relationship, or maybe this job is not working out, or maybe I need to leave town. These thoughts we're often using the busyness of the everyday to push them out of our minds, but they need to be heard. And very often a crisis is simply the mind's desperate attempt to get us to pay attention to the things it's been trying to tell us for far too long and we've been running away from. Yeah. 
I wonder how you would explore the question of of failure in our society. Um, you know, I think we're so heavily judged on on what we do, what we produce, how how we are, how we present ourselves, our persona. I, how how would you philosophically, psychologically suggest that we think about this idea of what failure is or how it functions in our world? So, look, I think it's one of the great uh, topics. Um, I think we have to free ourselves from the worst kinds of the fear of failure. In other words, the fear of the condemnation and disapproval of people that we don't like. Right? Many of us, most of us, spend a good part of our lives trying to impress people who don't care, who even if we did do something impressive, would actually hate us more. Um, and we use these people as our audience, and they don't even want to be our audience, but we imagine them, we have them in our minds, and we let them chew up some of the best decades of our life. This has to stop. You know, some of this is transmitted, to come back to our psychoanalytic theme, in families. You know, if you have families where the parents worried a huge amount about what the neighbours would say, mm. about what the aunties would say, about what the, the, the relatives would say, and what the school would say, this breeds children who sadly take this on board, and they become people who worry a lot, etc. It's, it's such a privilege if you have a parental figure in your early life who says, you know what, judge it by yourself, go your own way. It doesn't matter what the crowd says. Many of us did not have this person. So we have to do the work for ourselves. And I would implore your listeners not to keep listening to voices of people who don't want the best for them, who wouldn't care if they succeeded or failed, and who are a false audience. There is such a thing as failure and success, but it has to be on our own terms. And it can take so long to discover what it is that we actually mean deep down by success or failure and to live authentic lives. The, the real marker of this, and this is why in the Middle Ages in Europe, there was a habit of putting a skull on your desk, mm. is death. You know, think of death 7, 12, 15 times a day to keep you honest, to keep you living the life that you will be able to look at on your deathbed and feel that was my real life, not the life that we've been leading where it's simply the view of the audience that counts. But there's, there's a lot of psychological work in this if we didn't magically have this wonderful parent, which, as I say, most of us did not have. So um, it's bad enough to fear failure. It's even worse to fear a failure that is actually defined by someone else in terms that deep down we actually don't agree with. Don't let this ruin your life. Yeah. No, I, I think that's powerful when so many forces in the world, forces, just as you say, we don't necessarily agree with, tell us that there is only one or two um, attractive or um, appropriate paths to take. And, and, and I think, sorry, you know, if I can say, you know, the United States is fascinating in this because it's a democratic society to its bones. It cares about the opinions of the majority. Yeah. And also, it's a society of loners and pioneers and independent spirits. There are these two traditions in the United States mindset, if you like. It's like the person of the crowd and the person of the hut, of the cabin. It's Thoreau and it's, you know, mass democracy. And this is not an anti-democratic message in the voting sense. It's, it's about a, a democracy of the spirit. And I think, you know, my allegiance at least temperamentally, is towards the independent pioneer. And I think all of us were that one day. You know, when a child is two or three years old, it blessedly doesn't really care what anyone thinks. This is what makes children, as we put it, so cute. What we really mean by cute is they don't give a damn. They're just going to go for it and say that granny's annoying if she's annoying and the cake is nice if it's nice and they'll say it's horrible if it's horrible and they don't mind. And us adults... We giggle and we observe and we, you know, we're, we're kind of thrilled by the irreverence because it's an irreverence that we we struggle to find a mature equivalent to. It's present in Walt Whitman. It's present in Henry Thoreau, but it's not generally present in our hearts and minds on a daily basis. And my goodness, do we need it? Yeah, you've I think you've hit on something very, very profound in, in the American psyche. And I I think of where I live in in Southern California. Our our listeners are a lot here, but scattered around the U.S. or beyond. But I think of I I think culturally right now when I look around at the industry of happiness 
and of the gurus and self-help and it's it's like you lift a stone and there's another modern day healer there and i I know this is something you have thought about as well. Um, it, it's certainly rife in Southern California. What What are your thoughts on this this endlessly burgeoning industry that that we run we come across every day out here? Mm. Look, on the one hand, it's thrilling and beautiful and touching, and you know, so be it. I think it's you know, it's exciting. This was always California's kind of winning excitement and 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 curiosity. You yeah. know, it, it's great. But what I would say is. Um, Let's leave room genuinely for a diversity of approaches towards mental health and psychic development. Uh, you know, and I think w- what makes me suspicious is, are these, aren't these gurus often a little bit too alike? Aren't they roughly saying always the same thing? What about a slightly countercultural guru? A guru who, for example, tells you that, you know, life is suffering. Uh, let's, let's be a little bit more um, eclectic in who we use as a guru. Um, because it might be not just, you know, the latest incarnation of Alan Watts, but it could be the latest incarnation of Friedrich Nietzsche mm-hmm. or Sophocles or um, Dostoevsky. You know, let's be properly voracious in our curiosity about ways to get better, because um, there can be a, a, a kind of dispiriting homogeneity about this. And yet, all of this to me speaks of this really heavy, deep impulse to latch on to anything that gives us a, a shard of hope or a feeling just a little bit better. I mean, for example, you know, we, we've talked a lot about uh, the latest insights and in, in psychedelic therapies coming online, and which I, I do think there's a lot of promise for certain mental illnesses or PTSD. But I I just see people around me just, just darting off to whatever they can find to maybe lift however they define their happiness by 10 or 15%. Um, it, it, it just seems like a human story that plays out nonstop. Yes, and I think, but look, you know, the fastest way to gain relief is to be able to admit to the pain. Mm. You know, the moment that you can admit to the pain is the moment of relief. And that can be very hard to get to in Southern California, where the sun shines often, the oranges are on the trees, and we're supposed to be happy. But the ability to say, you know what, I can no longer cope, I'm having a breakdown, this is the end, I've made a failure of everything, This there is tremendous relief from this. So I think the ability to not cope is the beginning of being able to cope better. Um, and uh, and can be you know will be a terrific thing. If I can quickly talk about psychedelics, this is you know a fascinating thing. Let me say this on psychedelics: psychedelics are utterly consistent with the insights of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Um, th- the model is exactly the same as we've been practicing it for a hundred years, which is we have grown sick through repression, through the inability to look at painful things in our lives, yeah. and what the psychedelic does is to lift repression and gain us give us access to trauma and pain that has been buried. And so, you know, this is what Freud was was telling us back in his Austrian consulting room in 1910. It's exactly the same. It's just that the psychedelic hopes to get us there faster. And, you know, so be it. I'm hopeful that MDMA will be legal by the end of 2023 across the United States. That will be a wonderful moment. And But I don't think we need to... This won't be reinventing the wheel. It will simply be doing what psychotherapy has been trying to do all along. Yeah, and we see it in a lot of other ways. I mean, one of our programs was how uh, athletes doing ultra marathons uh, can find themselves in these altered states in which uh, moments of trauma can be reprocessed as the prefrontal cortex goes offline for a little bit. And so I'm just always fascinated how um, all of these are tools to kind of arrive to the same place. I'm sure you've noticed this. Yes. And, you know, use the word trauma. What is a trauma? A trauma Mm. is basically a pain that we have not found the wherewithal to process and to understand. And it could be a very big pain, like, you know, the the worst kind of trauma, but it can also be a little, you know, if I can use the word a little trauma, like, for example, a friend who doesn't understand us or a moment in a relationship where we feel utterly bereft or, or alone. These are also kind of traumas. And so every day we are collecting little traumas and not processing them. And, you know, part of mental health is the ability to go back over things and to understand how we've come to be unmoored and uh, and to suffer. And um, 
to, to heal it really always through process of understanding. Mm-hmm. But um, this takes time and yeah. we don't give ourselves the time to do this. You know, 10 minutes of living requires at least five minutes of processing, as it were. Um, and too often life you know, inputs so many stimuli on us that we don't have the time to decode. And then they build up and build up until we get to a crisis. I wonder, though, for some, I, when self-reflection or the constant retrieval of, of how we define trauma becomes almost unhelpful, you know, you meet people like this in the world in which there's almost uh, this feeling of, I, I can't move through something. You've seen this too, probably. I mean, what do we do with that type of, of, of someone being psychologically arranged that way? I mean, look, I, I think there are times when, of course, you know, it's like music. You don't want to hit the same note all the time. Yeah. However attractive the co- accord happens to be, you need variation. And our lives are, are similar. We need variations. We can't always hit the same note. And so, yes, there can come a time when we, as it were, we've had enough of introspection, which other, at other points is, is very good. We've had enough of pain. And then we need, you know, as it were colloquially, a change of scene, which is a very important thing. This may come the time when we, you know, need to appreciate our smallness and our insignificance in something bigger uh, and and more important than ourselves. And this is where traditionally people have turned to God for a sense of something that is vast, incomprehensible, and puts us very agreeably in our place. You know, some of the problem of the modern world is we loom so large in it. We we feel so important to ourselves and and within the kind of wider cities in which we live. And the great thing about um, traditional religions is they would take us out of that and contextualize us within infinity. And that was very, very helpful psychologically. For many of us, me included, traditional religion is now no longer something we can believe in, but we can pick up on some of the maneuvers of the mind that went with these religions when, for example, we look up at the night sky or we read a book that was written 3,000 years ago or we come into contact with elements of nature that are beautifully indifferent to everything we are and speak of forces and time spans that are utterly beyond our day-to-day comprehension. It's at that moment that we can feel agreeably reduced in our own imaginations. And we can be, as it were, nothing within a sphere which is so much more important than us. And that is a relief. Mm. And I, I appreciate how you're bringing in, I think, the fact that there are uh, the, these deeper truths or some wonderful psychological underpinnings of traditional religions. I, I, I find Southern California very, very secular. And, you know, we've talked about the, the reaching out to different gurus or, or folks in the self-help industry. But you've written a lot on, I think, how there are certain messages of faith traditions that that are vital to how we can operate in this world and become better versions of ourselves. Look, I, I think too often the conversation ends when someone decides that they don't believe in God, and then that's 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 the end. But of course, I think we all need to be students of religions simply because for thousands of years. Uh, an incredible amount of very good thought was directed towards these institutions. And they were, for the most part, institutions, not merely doctrines, but they were they were communities, they were, they were systems. And we ignore all that at our peril. So I think we need to be students of Zen. We need to be students of Hinduism. We need to be students of Christianity. Um, all of the world religions, Islam, Judaism, these are repositories of wisdom much of it will be inaccessible to us unless we do believe, but some of it will be. And, you know, I think of something like the book of Job, which is a fascinating book of the um, the Old Testament, which is really a, an inquiry into the nature of suffering, which ends with the wonderful, beautiful suggestion that sometimes we are not privy to the designs of the universe. Sometimes we cannot know why certain things have happened. And at that moment, we might just have to, as it were, switch off our relentless questioning mind and simply accept the flow of events, however perturbing and injurious they they seem to us. And that is really the the message of of, of Job for a secularised audience. So many, many things function, you know, you, you could go quite far down Zen Buddhism without subscribing to a lot of the more supernatural claims that are often associated with uh, with that system of, of, of belief. And, you know, I would urge your listeners always to ask of a religious system, what here can I use? Which is not a, a selfish question. It's a, it's a usefully 
um, urgent question where we we can feel entitled to bring our own questions and pains to the thoughts of others. Hmm. As we begin to to wrap up our time here, you have been um, a student, a a teacher of philosophy of big ideas, and I I wonder for you as as you continue to go deeper in into these subjects, what what where do you find your mind being drawn to? Are, are there do you return to the same questions? Are there new questions as you also age? I, I kind of am just curious to get a sense of where you are right now in your intellectual journey. You know, I was looking at some um, paintings that um, Picasso did of some pigeons that had landed on his balcony. This was in the 1950s in France. He was living in a villa in the south of France, and some pigeons came and sat on his balcony just opposite where he was painting. And Picasso did these wonderfully vivid, childlike um, drawings, paintings of these pigeons. They're full of life, but they're very crude. Just a beak, some feet, um, some wings. You know, it looks like a child did them. And around this time, he famously said to um, a a critic he was talking to that uh, when he was a child, he knew how to paint like Titian. But as he grew older, he relearned how to paint like a child. And this was his true achievement. And I think this is something that all of us might hear and learn from. I think the eternal quest is to remain open to some of the more, if you like, naive, but also dazzlingly simple and visceral and direct insights that our minds give us into all sorts of problems. Sometimes we can overcomplicate and layer on top of our feelings all kinds of inhibitory systems which prevent us from knowing who we really are, what we really like, what we really feel, what really we find funny or dark or charming or sad, and as it were, we become overcomplicated. And so I think it's always a balance. The more you know, the more you read, the more you hang out with, you know, big and deep thinkers, to to still keep in touch with that originality, that spark of originality, which was with us when we were three or four years old. You know, by all means, do not lose sight of that as you mature. And that's a, a lesson that I keep repeating to myself. Well, Alan de Botton, I, I I can't believe we've been speaking for nearly an hour. It feel, feels like five minutes with you, the way <laughs> we weave together these conversations and, and you bring these great thinkers to us. So I'm grateful for this conversation and I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Once again, that was Alan de Botton, philosopher, founder and chairman of the School of Life and the author of a number of books, including How Proust Can Change Your Life and Why You'll Marry the Wrong Person. That's all the time we have for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you next week.